How good of an actress is Vera Farmiga? Uh, very good. Vera, very good. Vera, very good. Uh, yeah, she, who boy. She gives two great performances in two great movies. I feel like only Vera Farmiga could make an international well-beloved movie star feel like nothing. Yeah. Yeah, you're talking about up in the air. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. <laughs> the woman who can tear George Clooney asunder is definitely the woman I want to know more about. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I know we're praising Vera Farmiga, but I also think George Clooney is a very, for like being, for being George Clooney, I think he's a very giving actor. Oh, I, I've got so much to say. Why don't we start the show and get into it? Let's do it. We are Necromancer. Um, oh, I didn't know we were adding sound effects to I, our... I thought I would do an echo, like we're throwing Necromancer into the canyon. Okay. Or or shouting down like a tunnel, you know? Yeah, I like it. <laughs> so I'm Shira. I'm a rom-com fan. I'm Brett. I'm a horror movie fan. What do we do here, Brett? Well, each week we watch movies and talk about them. So Shira will pick a rom-com. I'll pick a horror movie. We talk about those movies and then we mix them and match them and remix them and make the rom-com a horror and the horror a rom-com. Ooh, and boy, did I have so much fun with this week's two movies starring our first actor, actress, sorry, I... This is terrible. I, I'm already blowing it for team ladies. But um, yeah, yeah there's a is... big conversation, right? About whether or not you should call them actors or actresses. They're all actors. I don't right. understand why it has to be a gendered term. But we've done two men who've been the star of episodes past, um, Matthew Good and Tom Cruise. And we hadn't done a woman yet. And so I mentioned uh, Vera Farmiga, who you immediately responded to because Vera Farmiga, she's not like, you know, Julia Roberts just spinning out romantic comedies left and right. She's actually more of a scream queen. Uh, I, I feel like she's done a lot more horror movies, but she's very well respected in the genre. Yeah, definitely. She, uh, oh boy, she's good. <laughs> She knows how to, um, I mean, I don't know what kind of acting style she uses, but you can tell that she's almost a, a very physical actress, not in a very flashy way, not in like a Jim Carrey way, but you can tell that she embodies the character from the inside out. Alex and, and Lorraine both feel like two completely separate characters, but they both feel extremely well lived in. Well, I think... 
I, I mentioned this during the Matthew Good episode. I think that she is an excellent face actor. Um, yeah. As far as I think, you know, I feel like people underestimate how um, skilled you have to be to control your facial expressions. For instance, my eyebrows just dance on my face no matter what I'm saying or doing, and I can't control it. Um, but an actor is really able to to make their face into a tool and and just like Matthew Good, his eye acting alone is really excellent. And I think that Vera Farmiga does this thing that I have noticed some really good actresses do where it's like they know how to completely relax their face and show a flat affect where it's appropriate. Um, among sort of the older Hollywood actors, the person who I thought did this really well, Gloria Graham, who used to act in a lot of film wars, she would do this thing where she wouldn't move a single muscle in her face and it would just show everything. Where I feel like in both uh, Up in the Air and in The Conjuring, she knows how to make her face look completely relaxed or to only use her eyes, or to only use just the slightest turn in a facial expression to, to show what she's feeling. And it's really brilliant. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, think, I think the eyes are really the key to a good performance. Um, I mean, Vera Farmiga has nice eyes, but she also acts through them. And you can see you can you can sort of see the wheels spinning, the character listening, reacting in the moment, but also the the dialogue is you know up in the air has a lot of good dialogue, oh. juicy back and forth things, a lot of great flirting. Oh, so much great banter! But the thing you say about the eyes reminded me exactly why um, I started the actor theme episode with Matthew Good. Um, the first one was because in a lot of rom-coms and a lot of romance movies, one of the key things an actor needs to be able to do is look at someone really well. And it's hard to describe what that look is, but the actors who get it, get it. And Vera Farmiga from The Jump, the way that she looks at George Clooney from across the bar, it's not just like an insipid, come hither, flirty look. It's like a, I know you look, and it penetrates you in, in an emotional way, not just a, a sexy way. So I think that's really key in, in a romance, especially to, to see that kind of looking um, acting for lack of a better term. Yeah. I think the difference between, you know, a, maybe a good or great actor and a not so good or great actor is when they're looking and they're, they're not talking. Are they either listening to the other character or actor, or are they just waiting to say their lines? And you can sort of tell the difference and it, it really does make a difference in a performance. I mean, I feel like this, the answer to this question goes without saying, but I feel like I, I want to ask it anyways, because I ask it during all of our actor episodes. Does Vera Farmiga give good look? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think she gives great look. I mean, we haven't really had a chance to see her give us murder look, but I I suspect that she could also give uh, a good intent to kill face. Yeah, I only watched a little bit of the first episode of Bates Motel, but I think in that show she probably she probably I lets out her darker side. Forgot about Bates Motel. If I had even remembered, I, I have completely different love bites at the end of this episode, but if I'd even remembered to talk about Bates Motel, we'll we'll save that for the end of this discussion. Um, so which movie do you want to start with? Uh, I could go either way, but I have a. I think I have an, a little bit of an urge to go up in the air first. I know we usually cover the rom-coms first, but... I've always felt that it should just be random. Um, I, I don't have an agenda either way. Um, in fact, uh, whenever I post about episodes, I like to flip-flop it uh, in the image that I put up on the social medias. Yeah, I can see that. But yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm definitely up for Up in the Air. Why don't you this, hit us? Oh, sorry, this go was your first time. This was your first time seeing both movies? Yes, this was my first wow. time seeing both movies. Um, and I admit Up in the Air made me laugh. It made me cry. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'll, I'll just throw that out there before we jump in. Yeah, it's a a great flick. It it really, it really is. It's almost as if it were directed by the son of a very famous director. (laughs) No, I mean, not to give, I'll I'll give Jason Raven credit too. He's, he's pretty, he's pretty good. Um, And, and I like that he's, he's, he's up for a little romance, which, which always puts a, a director in my, my good book. Uh, but uh, why don't you hit us with the synopsis of the movie? Yeah, I just want to open or start with the fact that I pretty much hate 95% of opening credits. I think they're boring. I think they're stupid. I think they're there's no real point, especially since everyone's at the end of the movie anyway. Everyone's names are in the credit at the end. Come on. But I completely disagree. I love opening credits and I miss old movies that used to do crazy opening credits like in the red shoes. It opens the credits on a freaking storybook and they're turning the pages with illustrations and people's names or remember the women that freaking kooky ass opening. I'm I more more even more. (laughs) We couldn't be more different there. Uh, well, I think especially with modern movies, like I said, I, I, I dislike most opening credits because most opening credits are boring and stupid and dumb, especially if they're just over black. Come on. What are you doing? But with Up in the Air, I really like it really made me think of an old timey overture kind of, you know, this is going to be the the vibe of the movie. This is sort of a, a preview of you know, the rest of the movie. And so I, I do want to give a little bit of a shout out to Up in the Air's credits. I thought they were, you know, they were really good. So uh, the movie starts out. We open with Ryan out in the field firing a bunch of people, and that's his job. He's an outside contractor who comes in uh, to companies and delivers the bad 
and brutal news. Ryan spends a lot of times in hotels, airports, and on the road, but that's how he likes it. He doesn't have an intimate relationship with his two sisters, pretty much his only family. In fact, he pretty much doesn't have any relationships at all. He prides himself on uh, he prides himself so much on being a lone wolf that he gives seminars using a full backpack as a metaphor for life weighing you down. And only when you pack the most essential of essentials can you thrive and succeed. Photos are for people who can't remember. Throw them out and take some ginkgo. That is until he meets Alex, possibly one of the most sexiest women in the history of humankind. They immediately hit it off and thrive in their super-duper casual relationship. Everything is going really well for Ryan until he's called into HQ. There, newcomer Natalie introduces her new plan to make the company Glocal, aka using Skype or Zoom or whatever, to fire people remotely, thus jeopardizing Ryan's entire way of life. Uh, Ryan and... The, the whole concept of the Zoom firing uh, triggered me in these lockdown times. Yeah, it's uh, pretty brutal. <laughs> Very scary. Scary stuff. Um, Ryan and Natalie have a fierce tete-a-tete. And then Jason Bateman, a.k.a. the quote-unquote police captain of the story, partners them up to hit the road together so Ryan can teach Natalie the ropes before they put her plan into place. The two basically become Riggs and Murtaugh. They're opposites who challenge each other and do not get along, but they're forced to be together. She scoffs at his desire to simply collect airline miles and says if she had as many as he does, she would just look at the destination board and pick a place at random. As Ryan schools Natalie in the ways of travel and firing people, he continues to get his mojo on with Alex. But as Natalie starts to show some cracks, like when firing uh, an employee who threatens to jump off a bridge and her boyfriend breaking up with her, Ryan does start to show her a little more compassion. As a way of thanking him, Natalie challenges his mobile yet sedentary way of life. Ryan pushes back hard, but as he spends more time with Natalie and Alex, he slowly but surely begins to see the value in forming connections. Aww. Finally, their boss calls them back to put Natalie's plan into place. It's a bittersweet moment for them both as they both come to see things from the other's point of view. Instead of sitting in his office Skyping with randos, Ryan invites Alex to his sister's wedding. There he tries to open up a bit to his sisters, but it's a little bit awkward. And he also takes Alex to his old high school and the two begin to really bond. Ryan is called in to save the day to convince his sister's groom, who has last minute cold feet, because that's how cold feet works, to marry his bride. <laughs> that's a great line. Uh, where at the beginning of the movie, he challenged Natalie to sell him on marriage. Now he finds himself genuinely selling the idea, the idea <sighs> back to someone else. Loved that callback. Uh, so good. And like you said, when how this movie makes you cry, uh, I'm, I'm going to admit full on tear, shed a single full on tear when his sister says, you know, welcome back or welcome to the family. It's such a great, uh, such a great little moment. It was the fired people who made me cry, actually. I, oh man, uh, but I'll continue. Yeah. 
as Ryan goes to give a super seminar in Vegas at a mega conference to his biggest audience yet, something he's looked forward to for a long time, he finds it impossible to sell others on the idea of looking up to living his lifestyle. So instead, he does the super rom-com trope, heroic, uplifting thing and walks away, races oh, through the Such airport. a rom-com moment. I'm glad oh, you yeah. mentioned that. Big time. Uh, and he goes to meet Alex at her home to woo her off her feet. Big moment. Such a great moment. Happily ever after. Except one tiny problem. She is married. She has kids. She thought they were both on the same page. That their relationship was an escape. Big ouchies for Ryan. On his way home, he gets the seventh only super ultimate mega platinum American Airlines super car. Because he's flown 10 million miles. Another thing he's looked forward to, but now he's not so sure he wants. Back at HQ, the whole Skype thing is put on hold after it comes to light that a lady who was fired did actually jump off a bridge. So now he gets what he originally wanted, his old job and a wealth of airline miles. But instead of being happy with that, he goes to an airport and for the first time in his life, he looks at the destination board with no idea on where he's going. Ah, oh, so great. He also transferred all of his um, miles to his sister and her husband so they could finally travel the world. Yeah, I don't think he transferred all of them. He transferred a, a buttload, though. A buttload of them, but he also had a super buttload to spare. Yeah. What's funny is, um, so you mentioned the scene where he finally gets to meet the airline captain of course, I saw him, Sam Elliott, and was like, ooh, yay. Um, but then I couldn't remember his name in the moment, so I Googled mustache actor, and he was the first person who came up. Yeah, I've done that a few times with a few actors where I'm like, I have no idea who this is. Help me Google, and I'll type in something like that. And Google's like, yep, we got you. But yeah, I, I would say that... Uh, Tom, Tom Selleck be damned, Sam Elliott has taken the uh, the mustache actor crown uh, for uh, the top actor SEO terms. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should do a mustache episode. Oh, just all about mustaches? I don't know if there's much of a mustache connection between horror and rom-coms. I... I don't know if there's even any famous rom-com mustaches, but that's something that's something to consider. Oh man, how did you like that montage of the at the beginning of Zach Galifianakis doing all the crazy shit people would do if they didn't bring in George Clooney to fire him? Yeah, uh, I think this movie's use of montage all around is really, really great. Um, but yeah, with Zach Galifianakis, it's you could tell how they kind of saved him and used such a comedic, expressive actor for something short and sweet like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and you also mentioned uh, giving giving some props to George Clooney. He he is great in this movie, and I you know I always forget how magnetic George Clooney is. Like he doesn't talk; he purrs. Uh, every line is in his 
George Clooney Burr. I feel like he could read the newspaper to me while I fell asleep and it would be very comforting. Yeah, uh, I think he he has a very smug appeal about him, but I don't mean smug in the negative connotation. I'm sure there's a positive connotation equivalent of smugness that um, that is probably out there that I could use. Well, he just oozes class. Like, he's not the guy who's going to get his hands dirty, you know? I mean, that's why his character in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is so kind of against type because he's, you know, so out and out sleazy and dirty. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he's great in this movie. And I think he's great in this movie because he's vulnerable. I mean, I feel like everybody in this movie, probably with the exception of Vera Farmiga, has an opportunity or a moment where they appear incredibly vulnerable. Uh, I was thinking again of... Um, uh, which parts of the movie made me cry. Um, the Zoom firing scene where the guy is in the next room and you can literally hear, they can hear him sobbing through the wall. That was just so difficult for me to watch. It felt way too real, way too current. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it was very cinematic, too, because, you know, you see the shot from behind where he's behind that sort of glass partition and he's kind of fuzzed out. So you can't really see him, but you sort of feel his presence. And then, like you said, you can hear him from the other room. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think this movie's so good. But I, I know I've said in the past that I don't think comedies are inherently cinematic and it's really hard to make cinema like it's really hard to make cinema funny from a cinematic point of view like it's I think just Edgar not a Wright, requirement i mean good writing right. is really the only requirement to make comedy land most of the time yeah so i think edgar wright does a good job of making the cinema funny and this job doesn't make the cinema funny but it's a very well shot very dramatically cinematic movie so it sort of sort of ups the class on your normal rom-com type, you know, rom-com TM type movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah like uh, but Go ahead. Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? Uh, I was going to just give a few examples. I think like uh, when Anna Kendrick in that one scene that you just mentioned at the end, she crosses the names off the list. And then you see that huge list she has to go through. It's such a great visual storytelling moment. There's a lot of great wide shots of isolation. George Clooney sort of in wide, just in these open spaces, or like he likes to say, surrounded by people in quotes, but not really connecting with any of them. And then lastly, that hotel, uh, or his his house, his home apartment room. Oh is God, exactly it's so like sad. A hotel. So it's, it's you know, so it's just a great sad and gross. Yeah. I feel like only George Clooney too could remain dignified next to plastic vertical blinds. Um, I just, for me, just the mere sight of plastic vertical, vertical blinds just makes me depressed. Yeah, I was just at work staring out plastic vertical blinds and thinking, like watching outside. And I was thinking like, 
Oh, it's such a nice. I'm not usually an outdoorsy kind of person, but I was like, oh, it's such a nice day out. So, but I got yeah. plastic Lyme depression today. But yeah, they're the they're the curtain equivalent of fluorescent lighting, just just life depleting. Um, but uh, yeah, there's so many excellent moments in this movie, and it's interesting you mentioned that there's lots of isolation shots. And then it made me think of all of the shots where Alex and um, Ryan are together and the camera's kind of really tight on him because it's finally he feels close to someone. Um, I really loved their meet cute in the airport hotel. Like these people just literally live their lives in airport hotels. And then it was almost like the meet cute rom-com version of the American psycho business card scene where they're just comparing with each other different rewards and travel programs and talking about which one's the best one. And, and it just, uh, it was a great, um, like meets like moment where two people just instantly find out that they, they have the same perspective on the world. Uh, and then I loved, uh, the back-to-back laptops too. Oh, what a great, yeah. Like, again, it's a, it's a, it's a very cinematic shot. It looks, looks great. Feels great. Such a great moment. Um, yeah, you mentioned their sort of, um, like versus like and how, uh, how Vera sort of goes toe to toe with George Clooney and, and you can feel the, the connection and the, the smoke and fire there. Um, it reminded me of the lady Eve, how you talked about how much you liked her in the movie. Uh, I don't know her name, but um, um, yeah. I'm trying to remember what her name was in the movie, but um, in, in any case, it, it's a similar character where she seems like she's kind of always one step ahead of Ryan or George Clooney's character. She anticipates what he's going to say and finds a way to one up him. Um, I really liked the scene. Um, it, it almost felt similar to the thin man scene when, um, what is it, Nora walks in on Nick holding the crying girl, and then Alex walks into the hotel lobby and sees Ryan holding uh, Anna Kendrick's character um, while she's crying, uh, Natalie. And you have this whole scene where Natalie talks about her perspective and uh, Alex reveals hers and seeing those two characters play off each other was really interesting. And I feel like uh, I'm at a point in my life where I'm, you know, I'm 31. Uh, I'm not Natalie's age anymore. Um, I'm not uh, presumably whatever Alex's age is in the movie uh, either. But I feel like now I kind of almost understand both of their perspectives. And it's just interesting to see that difference between, you know, Natalie, who's just starting out and a bundle of nerves. And then Alex, who, you know, has got it all figured out in more ways than one, we learn later. What did you think of the reveal that Alex had a husband and family? Yeah, I was wondering what you thought about that, too. Um I I really like Alex in this movie. She's cool. She's seductive. She's sort of aggressive in what she wants. 
it's you know it's she's kind of cold but not really cold but sort of cold she's aloof yeah she doesn't tell him anything about herself really i mean she lets him i think when i think aloof i think like when i think aloof i think light and sort of dumb and and maybe i'm i don't know maybe i'm aloof well, aloof just means that the person isn't very forthcoming with information about themselves. If someone is aloof, they don't necessarily answer questions readily or speak that much. You have to try to get to know them and learn them. They don't really volunteer any info about themselves. Um, and, gotcha. and she kind of lets george clooney fill that space with whatever's going on with him she's kind of content not to really um give him anything real about herself i think it it's implied that for her this is a kind of fantasy where she can just tell him well just think of me as you without a dick or whatever it is she says um but in reality she tells him, you're just a parentheses. That's yeah, got to hurt. That was cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, um, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, you can definitely see where she's coming from. And it. I don't think it feels, I know that a lot of people will probably think it feels super scummy and that she's a bad person. Uh, but she's a made up person. So I don't really put too much thought into it in that degree. But I like I just get the sense that she's not doing it maliciously. I I kind of I kind of like that she's got this whole fantasy world and that we don't see the home world because um, this movie's not about her. I think you could probably find plenty of movies where characters have a home life and you see the movie from their point of view as they go out into this fantasy world. But I, I think it's a really, it, it approaches the subject from a very adult perspective and it approaches and it treats the audience pretty smart. Like it doesn't. It, it, it definitely goes on the assumption that the audience is going to be mature. And I'm really glad that you said that because I feel like, yeah, maybe a younger audience who hasn't really lived a lot might look at Alex's behavior and say, oh, she's wrong. She's immoral. She was lying the whole time or whatever you whatever kind of judgment you want to cast down. But I think being more mature, having lived, having, you know, had a really long term relationship, people are allowed to be complicated uh, and women should be allowed to be complicated. Uh, her life is really a mystery. Why she wants to have this fantasy of being kind of um, a, um, a lone wolf like George Clooney's character when she clearly has connections. She's got a full backpack. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. it, it, she's allowed to be complicated. And I feel like you don't, get a lot of that with the uh, female characters like a lot of roles are just the wife or the girlfriend or the girl period uh and vera farmiga 
does a really good job of finding roles that allow her to be layered and complicated. And, and Alex is definitely one of them. Yeah. I think, I think it's really interesting because if the movie ended with him getting her and them just riding off into the sunset, you know, that's, that's one way to end the movie and the movie, you know, you feel like George Clooney deserves it, but I, I see that ending as positive in the end because uh, there was some meme that I saw pretty recently that said, don't focus on finding the right person, focus on becoming the right person. Ooh. So it's, um, it's a little sappy, little, little sort of motivational postery, but I think it fits here. I think, you know, George Clooney, instead of him getting this person who he thinks will fill that hole in his life, he needs to focus on himself and let a connection happen naturally with someone else. Right. I mean, even though it's, I mean, I guess this might be our, our first rom-com bummer ending. Um, we've had a few horror movie bummer endings, but it's not really a bummer ending because the goal was achieved. Um, George Clooney's character changed as a person in exactly the way that he needed to change which was to actually put more value in human relationships. And that's something that he sort of superficially believes in the beginning because it's the point of his job is to have that face-to-face -face interaction with the people that he's firing. So he insists on human interaction as a rule because it allows him to not interact with anybody. And then by the end of the movie, he actually has you know, sold to himself exactly what he didn't want at the beginning and sees the value of it. And that's not possible without that, that whole relationship with Alex. Yeah. Uh, I think too, to her credit, uh, I loved their, their back and forth. Yeah. It was really nice when he showed her some compassion and you know, he, he didn't like her, but he still saw her as a, as a vulnerable person and in her times of need, you know, he helped her out. So. Well, I nice. think ultimately they learn to respect each other and you get the epilogue with Natalie going after her dream job in San Francisco, which she rejected before to chase a boy, another rom-com trope. Uh, and it turns out that Ryan wrote a letter of recommendation to the company, which you would think knowing his character at the beginning of the movie is something he would never do. Um, but by the end, he's, you know, he's really changed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what a haunting shot of her riding away on the, uh, moving walkway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When they reveal that the lady jumped off the bridge oof yeah that was that was really sad um and yeah no all of all of the people who got fired were really sad uh, i thought jk simmons who had the bit part as one of the people who got fired he did an excellent job um but yeah, it, I feel like this, this movie had that perfect balance between bitter and sweet and funny. Uh, it really managed to have it all without upsetting me. 
uh, in the way that I think other rom-coms with bummer endings, uh, read La La Land, um, did very much upset me because I don't think they necessarily earned it. Um, but uh, I feel like this movie earned everything. Yeah, they they did a great job of, you know, having great dialogue to sort of give you an insight into the character, but also letting the actors, like you said, express things through their face. And um, yeah. So should I ask the question? I feel like we both know the answer. Um, who we would kill from this movie? Yeah. Who would you kill? Jason Bateman. Oh, okay. You're right. We're totally on the same page. I wanted him dead the instant I saw him just patronize Natalie. And it was so like creepy and obvious that he was like all like sleazy and kind of like into her idea because he thought that she was cute and was giving her a platform not for the right reasons. Not to say that Natalie isn't a great project manager. I'm sure that she had great ideas, but like any project manager, you need to be able to verify that those ideas actually work in practice by, you know, syncing up with people like George Clooney's character. But yeah, Craig was so sleazy. Was yeah. that your I impression? Mean, Jason, yeah. Jason Bateman gives a great performance in it. Um, he plays a great sleazeball, but yeah, from a moral standpoint, that character, oof, he's got to go. He's got, got to, go. to go. All right. So we killed Jason Bateman. Now tell me, how was it to write the horror version of Up in the Air? Oh, it was so much fun. I had a blast doing it. These Both of these uh, uh, remixes came very quick and naturally. So, oof, good stuff. Yes, I would say that this it was the same for me. It it clipped right along. I I think I I found my lane for the horror pretty quickly. Um, per usual, my horror is a lot shorter than my rom com pitch. But uh, hearing you say that that you had fun, now I really want to hear yours. You want to go first? Yeah, I'll do it. Uh, my movie is called Hostile Takeover. Oh, I love it. I couldn't come up with a great title for mine. Yours is awesome. I couldn't come up with a good rom-com title for mine. So um, this this idea I had a long, 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 long time ago. So uh, I took the I took the kernel of that idea and changed it a little bit to fit this movie. But I had an idea a long time ago where, where we're in the future and there's no more oil, right? We used up all the oil, so it's very Mad Maxi. And that companies start to take over for countries and that we go back to a feudal system where corporations provide all the safety and and all the necessities and entertainment in exchange for work and loyalty and, you know, life. As in, if, you know, we have to go out there and form a military and fight this other company, uh, you're going to do it. So it's very kind of like. I didn't really know what steampunk was at the time, but it's kind of, you know, a cousin of steampunk in a way. And so in my version of this back in the day, that was all a backdrop. And when, when we struck the last bit of oil, 
in the Middle East, we opened up a portal to hell and demons came out. So people were, were living in these feudal corporation systems, but really my stupid, silly idea was a bunch of demon bounty hunters running around the countryside collecting demon bounties. Uh, but for, for this story, I changed it to a guy the, our main character is Buster and he's a, he's a grumpy old man, badass Clooney. So he's sort of channeling those, um, channeling those Richard Gecko from, from, from Dust Till Dawn vibes. Um, mm, you had me but, at grumpy. Yeah, but he's aged. So instead of being that charismatic Richard Gecko, he's grumpy old man, Richard Gecko. So, uh, his name is Buster because he's from the last Blockbuster store. And no way. No <laughs> way. And so he's hired by Comcast to assassinate the CEOs of other companies, right? So Comcast has all this information on other companies. So they have all these like dossiers on companies. And George Clooney has to go in and kill the CEOs of companies. And when he does it, so my, my story is not a horror movie. It's kind of it's kind of a horror in the way that Escape from New York isn't a horror movie, but there's enough horror elements in it to, you know, to kind of it's it's, it's our it's our JC, John Carpenter. Yeah. So uh so George Clooney, when he goes in, he has to fight these other bounty hunter bodyguard warriors, because the CEOs are just CEOs they like if he went in and fought a CEO he'd destroy them like that so every company has their own bodyguard gladiator type person and um and except for Comcast Comcast didn't have one maybe he dies at the beginning or something and so they hire they hire Buster as a as a sort of you know third party corporate guy and so the first i have five companies that i'm going to blast through the first company that he goes and again all these are kind of like in this version i'm just going to name drop companies but in the real version we'd probably have to you know do the thing where it's like you know the first company he goes to to destroy is apple so it wouldn't be apple it'd be you know orange or pear or what you know some silly diet brand cola version of apple but Oscar Meyer, Oscar Meyer, Apple, Dr. Pepper, like a conglomerate. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Apple, the Apple's gladiator bodyguard guy is very slick and he's very flashy and he's very confident. But I mean, I'm a big fan of Apple products, but the character is he a cloud. Of, oh, yeah, we could probably do something with the cloud for sure. Um, but he's Definite all sort of cloud effects. <laughs> Yeah, he's kind of like a false confidence. He's sort of all show, so Buster really destroys him very easily. Uh, the next company he goes to destroy is Nike. And so Nike's got all these sports, like, you know, like a, a, a tennis ball launcher cannon. And, you know, he's got Air Jordan bags. clones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, and so he fights in an arena, right? Like a stadium with an audience because the other one's, he probably doesn't fight in a stadium, but for Nike, he's got a stadium and everyone's cheering on their Nike guy. Uh, the third one he goes to fight is Burger King. So I know that McDonald's is probably bigger and quote unquote better, but I like Burger King more and it fits the feudal theme. So Burger King guy fights with like a flamethrower and he's got knives and a meat grinder and he's wearing like 
he's wearing the skin of his past conquests like you know like they're leather you know like like the burger king king but he's like leather face right oh it's gonna be badass and at one point maybe he like as he's losing he takes open an energy drink because he's all junk foodie and he like drinks this super energy drink that gives him a boost um my my fourth company is going to be tesla and so of course they've got Elon musk is totally a super villain oh big time <laughs> big time so uh so tesla's got like a predator type gladiator you know stealth solar powered yeah solar power uh laser cannon mount or shoulder mounted laser cannons like all this really futuristic type stuff so but you know he he goes through the tesla predator and then the fifth company is Smith and Wesson, right? So like, shit. So they're like weapons. They're the weapons the are their thing. Yeah, and so they they actually bring back the original Smith and Wesson. So they're like these undead monster zombie types, but they're you know they're they've got a little bit more going on upstairs. They're not just mindless zombies. But, you know, they're very brutish. They're very big and muscular-y. So they kind of, they fit with Buster because I see Buster being that sort of brutish, heavy type character. Um, but, you know, they have revolvers and they they use the revolvers in very precise ways. So instead of just shooting him in the head, it's like they Sharp shoot shooting. a weapon out of his What? Like sharpshooting. Yeah. So they shoot weapons out of his hand. They shoot the weak points in his armor and you know like at the end of the fight they're sort of accepting of their death because they've already died once so george clooney has to sort of you know walk them through death a second time and it's that bittersweet moment like in all those michael mann movies where the the good guy kills the bad guy but they're holding hands at the end and um yeah so but then you know, he does all this stuff. Other stuff might be happening, too, in the meantime. But then he goes back to Comcast, and, of course, he gets hints at this idea of world domination. And so he's like, well, From Comcast? Comcast. Oh, right. no. <laughs> Big there. So he, he basically just blows up Comcast headquarters with all the leaders inside. And it's a cool moment, right? He doesn't look back at the explosion. Typical stuff. Uh, but as the as the building blows up, a big crowd gathers around him. And of course, they're supposed to protect their company. So they've all got pitchforks and weapons and stuff. But then they just look at George Clooney. They look at Buster and they're like, well, what do we do now? Like, you blew up all of our leaders. So now you're our leader. And George Clooney goes, you know, I'm not your leader. You, know, you take care of everything yourself. He's like, I do have one piece of advice. So use it when you're at your most desperate. And this is where the movie, because it's all make-believe and silly and fun. We're having fun here. This is where the movie just gets silly. So he hands him a VHS tape, like cassette tape, you know, that you open up, the old school stuff. And then we cut to 350 years later and we're no in like way. yeah we're in like super sci-fi it's robots versus humans and there's a resistance and the resistance is like on their last legs and they're fighting the robots and they run into the safe and in the safe is that VHS that the guy gave them and it's like you know use it whenever you're at your most desperate and so they open it up and inside is a little note that just says be kind rewind and they're like oh well we're screwed credits <laughs> it's pretty funny yeah so yeah i just took that idea of corporate firings and 
brought out that physical, brutal side of it instead of the sappy, emotional side that you find in rom-coms. So if Vera Farmiga was in this movie, what would her role be? Would she be the CEO of Comcast? Yeah, that'd be great to see her in a villain role. Like, I think she'd be great. Know, yeah, she, uh, like, oh, Kate Blanchett and Hannah. Oh, come on. Marissa Wiedler. Uh, yeah, she, like, George Clooney doesn't want to do her, like, do her bidding, but she really does that thing where, you know, when you when you get someone to finally agree to do what you want to do, but then you just really rub it in, like the sitcom-y thing of, off the top of my head, Seinfeld, when uh, his tennis coach is like, hey, let me win one. And Jerry's like, all right, fine. And then the tennis coach starts rubbing it in, like, Jerry is a baby. Oh, baby. <laughs> so she can be like that, but instead of silly, it's intense and gritty. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can definitely see it. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear your idea, how how that one rolled off the rolled so out of your mind. This one is this one for some reason was really easy. And then I just um, it, it's weird. I I wrote a lot of impromptu dialogue when I was doing the rom com because I, I, it was just coming out of my head. Um, but then in this one, I just it's just all directions. Um, so I have no idea what any of these characters would say. But yeah, less it's less of a horror and more of a thriller. You know, thriller is just one of those lanes I love swerving into. Yeah. Um, so I decided to call this one The Air That I Breathe, like that song. All I need is the air that I breathe and to love. So maybe there will be callbacks with the song, but it'll be like creepy, you know? You know when horror movies turn love songs creepy? I love that. Uh, so the air that I breathe. Uh, Alex Gorin is a professional who lives in Chicago with her husband and children, but must travel frequently for her job. For years, she's been having an affair with another frequent traveler, Ryan. One night, Alex decides to break things off with Ryan, and he reveals that he knows about her family. Uh, Ryan threatens to blackmail Alex with pictures of the two of them together that he has on his phone if she doesn't stay with him. Alex fights Ryan over the phone, and then Ryan trips and accidentally hits his neck against the edge of the nightstand. He did. Oh, he did. Uh, Alex decides to cover up her presence in the hotel room, deletes the pictures from Ryan's phone, and she runs away, and she just tries to to get away with it. I mean, it, it was an accident, but she just doesn't... How is she going to explain to her husband what she was doing in that hotel room? She can't explain. Um, it'll, be, it'll all be over. Um, but several months later, Alex is traveling again, and she meets a young woman named Natalie in the Amex Centurion Lounge at the airport. And Natalie lets it slip that she got promoted after the guy who held the job before her, Ryan Bingham, suddenly disappeared mysteriously. Uh, Alex feels really uncomfortable. She makes an excuse to leave because this is just too much of a coincidence. And then later that night, she goes to the airport hotel bar and she's taking the edge off when she meets this new guy, Craig. And she and Craig start flirting. They go back to her room. 
Um, they have sex. She falls asleep. And when she wakes up, Craig is gone. Alex also likes to drink. So she goes to the ice machine to get more ice. But then she stops short because she sees Craig and Natalie talking. There is collusion. Uh, Craig and Natalie, she's learning that Craig and Natalie know that Alex killed Ryan. And they're trying to figure out how to prove it. So Alex makes a noise and then Craig and Natalie notice her. So now there's a chase scene uh, and they manage to overpower her and then they tie her to a chair in Craig's hotel room. Uh, so got to throw the hostage situation in there. Uh, and then Craig and Natalie attempt to torture the truth out of Alex, but then she doesn't break because Vera Farmiga would never break. Um, and then finally Alex figures out how to escape, but then Craig and Natalie are still on her on her trail. Alex kills Natalie, um, by pushing her down a flight of stairs because they're, you know, in the stairwell next to the elevators or whatever. Uh, and, but Craig corners Alex on the roof of the hotel. They struggle, but then Craig falls off the side of the roof and he, he dies, um, so it seems like Alex has gotten away with it yet again, and she heads to the airport to catch a flight to Chicago. Uh, maybe she's on the plane. She's acting all weird, hysterically giggling here and there, saying weird shit to the flight attendant. Um, but then when the plane touches down and Alex walks into the gate, there are four police officers waiting to tell her that she's under arrest. And then we end with her getting cuffed and led away. No, I want her to be, I want her to be free. You wanted her to get away with it. I feel like I've yeah. seen too many, I've seen too many uh, code film noirs where anytime you kill someone you have to be punished and so i just went auto noir mode which was uh if you murder someone and you have to get arrested or or be punished at the end in some way yeah i mean it makes sense but no i want vera for to get away with murder three yeah. people the first one was an accident. I will give Alex that. But when she, eh, I mean, it was self-defense when she pushed Natalie down the stairs. But, okay, I guess even still, it's just, it's it's going to be some very messy legal proceedings for her. She might actually get off without that much time. But she ran, and her husband's definitely going to find out about the cheating. Uh, yeah. But there's a very fun sequel in jail that we could write, too. For sure. Um, yeah, I want to also, we mentioned this episodes ago, but I, I always forget to do it. Uh, we should have a little segment where we follow up on each other's love bites or recommendations if we check them out. And you had mentioned two movies that I watched, one of which was The Asphalt Jungle which is a very good, very fun, like crime noir. So I had a great time with that. Love movie. some procedures. Oh yeah. And then the second one that I watched after that was Laura from 1944. And I never really had a favorite noir uh, before that. I was just, you know, if anyone asked me or it came up in conversation, I was like, eh, double indemnity, why not? But like 10 minutes into Laura, I was texting Sonia 
this movie is freaking nuts. This movie is crazy. This movie's so good. It's so well made. It's well written. It's well shot. It's well acted. Holy smokes. The story's great. Everything. Oh my God. And then like, I don't want to, I hate saying this kind of stuff because I don't want people to try to like spend the whole movie guessing what happens, but there's some twists and turns stuff that happens, especially in the middle of the movie where I just lost my shit. I was like, this movie is nuts and there's not a week yeah. minute in the movie oh my god Laura! going in blind on laura is important you, oh. you know what's funny about that movie is typically i am the worst person to talk to if you hate spoilers because i almost always i don't give a damn I, I really care more about the journey. You can tell me any spoiler about any show or movie and it won't affect me in any emotional way. But I will amend that rule for Laura. I will keep Laura's spoilers simply because I feel like the movie is so much fun if you go in completely blind. I, uh, oh man, by the end of the movie, I was, I was like, I just want to watch it again right now. I told everyone, I told my dad and mom, and I told everyone, I was like, you guys got to go watch Laura. I think it's pretty easy to find online for free, although the quality isn't that great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to buy it at some point because hopefully, I don't know if it's on Blu-ray or not, but hopefully it gets a Blu-ray treatment. Holy smokes, that movie knocked me off my feet that was a great recommendation i'm so glad oh, you i'm so i'm so glad um i want the painting like it would be so amazing to walk into my home and see the painting of laura there and then look up at it like i'm dana andrews obsessing about her yeah. murder it, it just would be amazing if anybody yeah. knows where i can find the laura painting tell me I definitely want to know. Um, yeah, so just wanted to mention that real quick. But um, yeah, I think, oof, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready for The Conjuring because I love this movie so much. So I know that as I listen to this podcast to edit it, I'm just going to be thinking, oh, I should have said this. Oh, I should have said that. Oh, why didn't I mention this? So, so I'm just going to be all over the place on this one. This movie, I love it so much. I have a confession to make about this movie. I try to act like I'm a little bit tough and that I don't get scared by scary movies. And oh yeah, I grew up watching scary movies and violent stuff and you can show me the most shocking gore and I'll yawn or whatever tough girl bullshit I am spouting off. but. The Conjuring is not a gory movie at all, but it is the scariest movie we've watched for this podcast. It was embarrassing how scary this movie was for me because Doug was in the background being smarmy while he was working out. And then I was watching The Conjuring for this podcast and it was obviously funny to him how scared the movie was making me because I kept basically saying, I'm so stressed out right now. <laughs> this movie is stressing me out. I really, you know, when I was watching it, I wished that I had had the chance to see The Conjuring in theaters because I feel like this would have been a perfect movie to go on a date 
and no shame in my game. I would probably clutch Doug through the entire movie. And then if you see it in the theaters, you can't wuss out and turn the lights on and turn the volume down or, you know, I'm familiar with all the tricks. You can't pretend that you've never done it at least once. Um, But yeah, if you saw The Conjuring in theaters, there's no escape. You're in for that ride. Yeah, I saw it in theaters and I... There, it, it wasn't a packed theater, but there, there was enough people in there. And, you know, I know that that when it comes to movies, you're not supposed to talk and stuff like that. And I get it. I totally get it. But I also like a verbal audience that reacts appropriately. Me too. And there was some there was some young girls in the movie. I mean, the movie's rated R purely for being scary. It's not rated R for nudity, not rated R for language, not rated R for violence and blood. It's rated R just because it's so freaking scary. And they leaned into that in the marketing a little bit. And the movie opened at number one and made a shit ton of money during the summer. Like, oh my God, I love everything about this movie. But in the movie, whenever there was something scary, all these people would like, ah, they'd yell or scream or gasp. And then they'd all giggle and go like, oh, my God, you yelled louder than me. No, you yelled louder than me. And like they would be giggling to release that tension. And, you know, I wasn't sitting up in the I like to sit up in the front, but I wasn't sitting up in the front like, man, you guys are talking to the movie. I was like, if I ever made a movie that got this kind of reaction, oh, I would be so happy. Well, it's it's great. I think that it's it's perfect to see with your friends or a loved one, because if you're the kind of couple or friends who like to dog on each other and and like to laugh at each other, then it can be really funny. And I ultimately had to laugh at myself for how scared I was. And I just I accepted it. This is this is who I am. And it was very amusing for my partner at the time to watch me be scared of the conjuring. But there are some moments in this movie that are legitimately stressful if you if you are fully invested in the movie. It's it's scary and it's scary with just so little um, yeah, the most violent thing to happen in this movie is um, the part where she vomits blood. Um, yeah. But that's it. Other than that, it's just clapping and people appearing where you don't expect. Um, not even really jump scares so much as the camera moves slightly and then it's like, oh, it's here. Or things that shouldn't happen happening. Right. Yeah, I oof, I love this movie so much. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this should be a subtitled Sleep Paralysis, the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a sleep paralysis nightmare. Uh, so shall I get into this, this summary, this kind of long summary? I'll try to I'll try to work through it pretty fast, but so much happens in this movie. It's just it's it's a lot to track. But here we go. Um, So we open with an intro of our future spinoff star, Annabelle the doll. Um, By the way, another thing that is a a big scare trigger for me is dolls and puppets. I 
they're not that scary for other people, but I really hate dolls and puppets. And it, yeah. it's just that, that for me always has been something that since I was a child has scared me. But yeah, creepy ass Annabelle, uh, this group of co-eds thought that they were doing the ghost a favor by letting it possess the doll, but they made a big mistake. So paranormal investigators, husband and wife team, Ed and Lorraine Warren have to explain that the doll is being used by a demonic force that ultimately wants to possess them. We then transition to a university class where Ed Warren is conducting a lecture on demonology and then a title card pops up explaining the Warrens and that there's one case they refuse to talk about. Reveal title, The Conjuring, bam. Oh my God. Now we're going to learn what the case is. When that happened in the theaters for the first, like the first time I saw it, I, uh, I was in my seat just shaking with like, holy crap, this movie is going to be fantastic. I mean, I'm already a huge James Wan fan. I don't think he's directed a bad movie. But I like when the, when they just had the balls, the cojones to be like, you know, that old school font throwback font of the scrolling and the conjuring. It just popped up and was so in your face, that sort of retro yellow. And it oh, my God. Drag I, Me like, to Hell does it, too. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really effective. So now we're back 1971, a year that we discussed in detail in a previous episode coincidence entirely um roger and carolyn perron have moved along with their six daughters into a remote country house tellingly the dog refuses to go into the house on that first day and then the kids while playing a game of hide and clap more on that later find a boarded up entrance to a cellar in the closet and then the next day, Carolyn wakes up with bruises. They find the dog dead. And then they also notice that all the clocks have stopped at 3.07 a.m. The spooky shit continues until one night, all the pictures fall from the walls at once. And Caroline is trapped in the basement by one of the spirits at the same time that two of the daughters are being attacked by a spirit in their room. They've had enough. Carolyn goes to the Warrens lecture and begs them for help in the parking lot. Ed and Lorraine go to the house, and Lorraine confirms they are being haunted by a very malevolent spirit. The house and the family need an exorcism, but they first need approval from the Catholic Church, and that will require proof that they are being haunted. So the Warrens, with another paranormal investigator and a skeptical police officer, set up a recording device all over the house. We also get some background on the big bad, it's a witch named Bathsheba who committed suicide on the property and cursed all who would take her land. Um, so nothing. She also killed her own child. She loves murdering kids. That's kind of her MO. Um, so nothing happens on that first night. But then during the day while everyone is gone, Bathsheba appears before Caroline and vomits blood into her mouth, implying that she gets possessed. So the second night, one of the girls starts sleepwalking again, and she's pulled into the wardrobe by the ghost of a little boy. Um, the adults find her in a secret passage behind the wardrobe. After they pull the daughter out, Lorraine goes into the hiding place, and then she falls through the floorboards into the cellar, where she learns that the ghost boy was murdered by his mother when Bathsheba possessed her. Now, I wonder if that rascally old witch is going to do it again, 
Uh, you bet she is. So Lorraine also accidentally leaves her locket with a picture of her daughter in the cellar. Uh, well, the now we like grabbed by the by the ghostly poltergeist force. She hates she hates healthy parent child relationships. Yeah. Um, she's not about that, Bathsheba. So we've finally got enough proof to commission an exorcism and the Warrens meet with a priest and he promises to get the request to the Vatican. Meanwhile, Bathsheba makes a collect call to Annabelle for assistance through the mother and daughter lockets uh, and scares the shit out of the Warrens' daughter, Judy. Uh, the Warrens are able to rescue their daughter in just enough time to realize that it was a misdirect. Carolyn has driven off with the two of her daughters from the motel the parents were staying at, and she's headed back to the house. I feel like this scene falls into that category of horror movies that I really love, which I like to call the something's wrong with mommy movies. Like, um... The Babadook is a something's wrong with mommy movie. Um, Carrie, definitely something's wrong with mommy. Um, uh, also, the recent Haunting of Hill House, something's wrong with mommy there. Um, we, we love haunting moms. Um, so the Warrens, Roger, the other paranormal guy, and the police officer, they get to the house and they stop Carolyn from killing one of the daughters while the other one is hiding. And they don't have enough time now to wait for the priest. It's on. So Ed Warren is going to have to do the exorcism himself. And no, things go horribly. Priest. He's not approved. He can't do it. It's too dangerous. He's ready. He's the only demonologist ordained by the Catholic Church. So I think he, think he can handle it. Um so things go horribly, horribly wrong, as you would expect. And it seems like Carolyn is lost forever to the possession by the witch. Uh, and then the possessed Carolyn gets free of her restraints just as they figure out where the youngest daughter is hiding. So it's a race to get to the daughter. And then possessed Carolyn is about to stab her daughter with scissors when Lorraine makes one last Hail Mary to get through to her. Uh, Carolyn fights the possession and then she throws up a bunch of blood and she is herself again. The survivors walk out of the house into the daylight and are saved. Lorraine and Ed go home and learn that the Vatican is just to prove the exorcism. But it's over. And they've got a lead on a new case in Long Island. Amityville. Oh, the Amityville Ooh. horror? Were they yeah. involved with that too? Uh, I don't know, but it's a neat little reference. I just liked that, um, as to be expected of any bureaucracy, the Vatican approved the exorcism after the problem was solved. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a, a nice, funny little moment. The movie's full of, you know, funny little sides to release that tension uh, the movie is just full of so many great moments like not only is this a great couple movie for being one where you can hold your significant other while you're scared um it's also a great couple movie because uh ed and lorraine warren um, Lorraine Warren being Vera Farmiga have a really cute relationship. They're a team. They work together. He cares about her. 
and he doesn't it's want so her to wholesome. be hurt. It, it's very yeah. wholesome. Yeah, I, I like that the I like that they're kind of side characters for for most of the movie. Like we there's a huge chunk where they're not even in the movie as they set up the family and the haunting and stuff. But it's nice because the family is what the Warrens want. So even though we're not spending time with them, we're getting an insight into their wants and desires. And so when uh, when Lorraine Warren says, you know, we have to help this family, you can really feel it. Like you feel the the connection there. You you feel the sympathy, and it's it's really. I mean, Vera Farmiga knocks out that compassion part out of the park she she really you know she's a great mother in this movie and she's very sympathetic to to the parent mother oh her her mama bear moments were great like when she sees judy's a vision of judy in the water ophelia style and she just knows something's gonna happen um i also felt like uh, so the first act of the movie does a really good job of painting sort of what the Warrens referred to as the infestation stage. Uh, what is it? Um, infestation, um, oppression, possession, or something yeah, like that. That's so so, cool. so th they really make it seem like this is an unstoppable force. These, this family is screwed. They're all going to get murdered. And then the first time you feel hope in the movie is when the Warrens are finally there and Lorraine is wandering around the property and you're like, she's going to figure this out. They're going to yeah. be okay because Vera Farmiga is here. And they figure it out almost right away. And it's so funny when she's like, well, no wonder why they are experiencing all this. They've got a dead witch. They've got a newborn who was sacrificed to Satan. They've got a mom who's killing kids. They've got a maid who's dying. They've got this. Like, and she's just reading all these newspaper articles. And she's like, this place is haunted. And so, it's a big old pile of ghosts. Yeah. Um, the thing that you mentioned at the beginning, as you were talking about the scares and stuff, and there's no jump scares. The thing that I love about this movie is there really are no false scares. Everything is escalating. So by the time you get to the end, when it's exorcism time, you feel that tension of every time, like every night, every progressive night that happens, the threat gets more and more real. And then once the threat is real, the threat is dangerous. So there's only really one kind of false jump scare, and that's when the mom is playing with the music box mirror thing, and then the kid jumps up and goes like, boo, spook ya. But yeah, that's, yeah. That's, the, that's the rule of threes, though, because at the beginning, when she's underneath the tree and she's playing with it when she first finds it, it's spinning, and then she looks over her shoulder, and it's, you know, it's like for repeat viewers. It's like, oh, she, she sees the ghost, even though we, the audience, don't catch that at first. And then... She has the mom do it, but the adult doesn't see the ghost. Only the kids, you know, those spooky kids can see the ghost. But then what a freaking badass moment when Vera Farmiga finds the rope that the that the lady hung herself in. And then she purposefully starts doing the music box. And there's two things that are happening inside you as a viewer. First of all, you're like, no, why are you trying to bring out the ghost? But the other thing that's happening is, 
fuck yeah, Vera, you're a badass. Like, Oh, man, that was a great fight for your life moment when she fell through the house into the cellar. Right. Oof, that was that was scary. You know what what you said made me think is how often with a horror movie, once the threat has been named and seen, it's no longer scary. And that actually doesn't happen with that movie. When you find out that the switch killed herself on the house, yeah, the explanation is kind of silly. But knowing who the enemy is doesn't make it any less scary. It continues to be really scary. Um, and it's it's just it's just great. I think they they really knocked it out of the park. Yeah, part of that is a, a horror movie, the the anatomy of a scare is building up the tension, ratcheting up the tension, right? And this movie does it great visually because you know there's a lot of long, steady shots. Uh, where they really let something in the background linger. And then throughout the shot, that background object sort of gets more scary just because of what's happening. And so the movie is scary because it builds up the tension and then it releases it. But when you release the scare of a, like a, a horror scare, it's a, it's a moment. It's not a scene. Like how can you draw out that moment to an entire scene? You can't. I don't know if there's any movie that can take a scare and make it a scene. So instead, what they do is they switch gears and they go from horror movie to like Indiana Jones action exorcist movie. And they take all that tension of the villain and now turn it into not just a moment of like one big final scare. It's one big final confrontation and it like it's such a great way to to utilize all the scares all the scares were really just building up the tension for that final battle uh great stuff man it yeah really it, it really is i just i i felt like the hide and clap stuff was pretty genius i remember when this movie came out seeing promos and trailers where the clapping was a big part of the trailer footage and i was like oh this is stupid um but actually seeing the movie the device was really it was really powerful i think it it worked really well um yeah it's there's, you know what else I think really worked? You, you talked about kind of with scares, it's a moment and you have to release that tension and build it again. I feel like the movie knew where to restrain itself. It gave us one day where things went right. The Warrens got there. They defined the issue. They named the problem. They set up a solution Nothing happened the first night. We had breakfast together. We went for ice cream. But then that was the precise moment that allowed the demon to enter the wife. Uh, Also, mad props to Lily Taylor. Uh, I think that she is an incredible actress. Um, I know we're all about Vera Farmiga today. But uh, yeah, I love Lily Taylor. She's in a really great older movie with River Phoenix called Dogfight, um, mm. where they play a couple. She's just, I don't, she's been great since day one. 
Yeah, she's great in the movie. Ron Livingston is great in the mm-hmm. movie as a more quiet, you know, vulnerable performance. Um, yeah, what a what a great what a great movie. Um, for for the ending, I liked how there's there's sort of I, again there's kind of I guess two kinds of people who could watch this movie. There's the kind of people who go who take that sort of foreshadowing of. Patrick Wilson, Ed, Ed Warren saying like, we can't do the exorcism. We're not going to do the exorcism, right? Like, first of all, all this stuff is probably fake. You know, they're, they're the biggest skeptics in the movie because they know, you know, they know that most of this stuff isn't real, which makes when it is real, it makes it even scarier. So, so good. But they're like, we're not going to do the exorcism. We're, we're not going to do the exorcism. We are not going to do the exorcism, but the movie's really like, wink we're gonna do the exorcism so when Chekhov's exorcism right so when when ed warren finally says like i have to do it i have to do the exorcism right here right now we're out of time there's two reactions that you could have one reaction is meh i knew they were gonna do the exorcism the whole thing meh or you could be like fuck yeah rock and roll switch gears boom let's do the exorcism. This is going to be awesome. You know, very metal. Man, 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 man. Like, oh, cause then, you know, the blood, like that blood spurting out is such a violent image. But right. It's and they were saving it all for that third act. Yeah. Oh man. I, I can't praise this movie enough. I, I agree. And I, I also agree with what you're saying about foreshadowing. I think that if you are somebody who, you know, doesn't want to just embrace a movie for what it is. You might be a stick in the mud and be like, I knew that was coming, but that's not the point knowing that it's coming. It's that, yeah, that's where we're going and it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Uh, It's, it's, I mean, I, I know I mentioned it a few episodes ago, but I love the fifth element. It's easily the movie I've seen the most out of any movie and that or out of any other movie. And that, um, Bruce Willis is built up as the biggest action guy in history, right? Like when the guy opens up his profile of all the weapons needed for the mission and it's just this giant list of stuff. Like Bruce Willis is built up as the ultimate action hero. And Fifth Element does not have a lot of action in it. You know, the movie's two hours and most of it is not action. But when the action happens, Oh, like they just hit it so right. And it's such a condensed punch of action that it just feels good. It's the same way for this movie with the exorcism, where the moment the exorcism starts happening, it's like, yes, this is what I signed up for. Yes. Oh, it it definitely delivers. I think that's why it's easy for this movie to get away with not being gory um, because I feel like a lot of lazy horror movies will just use gore as their shorthand for scary and they haven't really earned it. It's just shocking for shock's sake. And this movie really deploys gore in a very exact way where blood is going to come out of her mouth here, here, and here. And it's going to be great. It's going to be scary. Uh, did you have any thoughts on the relationship between Ed and Lorraine? Other than I know that we just mentioned it was wholesome, but. 
Oh, I love when they keep saying God brought us together for a reason. They are yeah. a couple that believes in fate. They're a couple that believes in working together. Um, Ed doesn't just use Lorraine for her skills. He cares about her. You know, he talks about how every time she works on someone, it takes a little bit of her away. Um, and so he's, you know, he's looking out for her and then she's looking out for him too. She doesn't want him to do it alone. And I think during the exorcism too, he tries to get her to leave then as well. Right. And she says she's not going to leave him behind. Um, so you, you get to see how they really genuinely care about each other and then see each other as equals. Neither one of them is more qualified than the other to work on a case, they're really meant to be a team. Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad that we would just watch The Thin Man because when you, in our behind the scenes pre-conversation, when you name drop Nick and Nora, I had that exact same thought as I was watching the movie. Like the conflict doesn't come from them bickering or having a difference of opinion. The conflict comes from something external that they have to work together to overcome. And so, yeah, when she says, no, we're a team, we can only beat this together. Separate, we are weaker. Together, we are shot. It's uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, right? Like, <laughs> uh, uh, apes together strong. So uh, great stuff, yeah. And I love how the movie's very dark, even during the daytime at the beginning of the movie. The, very, the movie's very dark, very gray, all that stuff. But then Spooky at the end house. of the movie, yeah. At the end of the movie, when when uh, when possessed mommy takes the scissors and she's about to kill the daughter at, in the basement, uh, and all the characters are fighting to to help her, it just becomes this giant circle jerk of po of positivity. It's like <laughs> did that and, so did that bother you or did you like that? I, I loved it. It's such a it's such an unexpected thing to have in a horror movie, which is this uplifting moment of Ed yelling at 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 Ron Livingston like, "Support your wife. She needs you." And Ron Livingston like, "Honey, that's our kid. You love her." And then Lorraine putting her hand on the mom's head and saying like, "Remember all the positive things. This is your child." And then you get that glimmer, that flashback, the ray of, of light, yeah, beaming on her head over you. And it's so nice. Like, um, so it's just everyone, everyone is just supporting each other in that moment. And Sonia is not a horror movie fan, but she watched this movie, and at that moment, we were both verbally cheering on everyone in the movie and especially at, at the that moment before when ed says you know i gotta do the exorcism leave and vera's like no i'm staying sonia was like yeah yeah like just cheering for them and i i was the same way i i mean i've seen the movie a bunch of times but i was like sonia was cheering i was cheering and it was you know just like all of a sudden at the end of this really scary movie you just have everyone going like hey let's be nice to each other and i it's such a such a nice moment i think they 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 definitely earned the the happy sunshiny ending they get to walk out into the light yeah. uh you also reminded me 
that what I typically hate about exorcism horror movies, I didn't mind in this movie at all. One of the things that annoys me about most exorcism scenes is that the only way to get rid of the demon is to read to them. And ultimately reading to the demon does not work. In fact, yeah, she gets stronger. She breaks out of the chair. Everything that could possibly go wrong goes wrong. And then you can see Patrick Wilson's confidence just waning and waning as he realizes that he can't just read your way out of this. But that's always annoyed me about exorcism movies, because if I were a demon, I'd be like, hmm, time to settle in for a nice audible. You know, I a reading doesn't scare me away. Um, even that part of the Bible where it's just names. Um, but yeah, they, they did a really good job of making the exorcism scene exciting. And then at the end, it's them coaching her to come back to herself that makes her beat the demon, not reading Bible verses. Right. Yeah. It's a very tough thing. And I think you, you're exactly right that having the conflict be internal instead of just reading um two two super quick things to wrap it up is yeah my favorite thing in this entire movie is when ed is is sort of like you guys got to hold her down you know and everything is going wrong in the exorcism and then that wardrobe falls over and he has to roll dodge his way out of it like it's i've i never would have thought that a horror movie could make a roll dodge so badass. But again, it's got that Indiana Jones vibe where all of a sudden, because Patrick Wilson is so fucking cool. Um, it just is such a great moment. Like roll dodge. Ugh, it's unexpected. And then the other thing is this movie does poltergeist and it works. This yes. movie's got the static screen, which is I, like, it's not like they're specifically referencing poltergeist. Cause it's like a little callback. Yeah, static screens were a thing back then. TV ended at a certain time, and there was nothing on TV. Um, so it's not a specific reference, but, you know, it's if you have static on a TV in a horror movie, it's poltergeist. And so they, they did poltergeist, and it worked. Like, that's hard to do, man. I I agree. No, it is. So is this going to be another obvious answer to our our favorite question for our horror movies? Well, for I mean, Vera is the centerpiece of the show. So of course, Vera is the answer. She's she, yeah, she's crush beautiful. on Lorraine. I hugest crush on Lorraine. But just to give a little side answer, I think joey king who's one of the daughters she's the one who who yes. looks under the bed and sees the ghost behind the door her performance in that is phenomenal especially for a little kid and stuff i know joey king has gone on to do a couple of uh bigger movies and stuff but you can tell right away that oh this kid is special and her performance in that really terrifies you because you it's one of those things where you don't know what she's seeing but you just see how terrified she is and you're right there with her. Yeah. I thought that she was great in that scene. She was great in the scene where she's in the back of the squad car and the birds come. Uh, Yeah, no, she, she's definitely got the makings of a scream queen in her own right. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to Ed and Lorraine have such a great, 
chemistry together that like of course they provided the perfect material for rom-com they really did they made it so easy for me to just jump right into this one um yeah no it's all all the pieces were already there um so who should go first uh i would love to hear yours all right. I called it A Midsummer Night's Conjuring. And not all the plot pieces are there. It moves pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, it's not a real movie. So this is the story of how Ed and Lorraine became a couple. I decided to do a prequel to show how they fell in love. Uh, so before they fell in love with each other, Ed and Lorraine hated each other because they were competing over a lot of the same paranormal jobs and cases, but then they had very different approaches. Uh, so this is the case that made them a couple. So The Conjuring is the case that they don't talk about. This is the case that brought them together. So we rewind to back in the day, and Ed is this starchy little Catholic boy who's really uptight, um, I mean, he's the only demonologist ordained by the Catholic Church, so he's not a rebel. Right. This guy has played by the rules his entire life, um, and then he only really goes by Catholic practices when he's dealing with the paranormal. And then Lorraine, on the other hand, she's a bit more of a rebel. She's had the sight her entire life. And although she's been baptized, because they made such a big deal about being baptized, I figured we'd give Lorraine that. Um, she has a more complicated relationship with religion because of her powers. And when it comes to dealing with the paranormal, she's a lot more likely to put herself in danger than Ed, which really bothers him. So it's like they've kind of got this antagonistic relationship, but there's also like clearly that, um, you know, playground politics thing where it's like, I hate seeing you put yourself in danger. Um, so these two rivals, they're running into each other all the time and they can't stand each other, um, but it doesn't stop them from getting hired for the same speaking engagements. Um, they're like those people who came to your school to argue pro and against marijuana. Like people just want to see them debate. Um, so they keep getting hired for these same engagements. Um, and then one day after a lecture, there's this guy, Mr. Perone, who corners Ed and Lorraine and insists that he needs both of them to help him with his haunted farmhouse. Um, they go back with the man to the house, and as they are pulling into the driveway, two naked frat guys run out of the house holding their clothes and screaming. And Mr. Perone says, ah, it looks like I lost another lease. Um, and he explains that this happens to all of the college students he tries to rent the house to. Around 3.07 a.m., um, music starts playing and something possesses the people inside. Uh, nothing happens when Mr. Perone spends the night there alone. It's only happening when there are two people in the house. And so that's why he needs both Ed and Lorraine there. He can't just hire one of them. Gotcha. Um, so they agree they're going to just work together just this once, um, but they're clashing from the get-go because Ed insists that they have to get evidence so the church can exercise whatever is haunting the place. And Lorraine argues that not all situations require exorcisms, and if they do, why isn't he good enough to do it himself? 
Uh, so little little nudge nudge to him being a future exorcist. Um, you can't just wait on the church. Uh, and they just continue to bicker all through that night as Ed sets up his surveillance and Lorraine uses her sight to find out what's haunting the place. And then finally she comes to the spot uh, on the top floor of the house and she sees it all. Years ago when the house was still being built and only the floorboards and frame were up, a high school couple snuck onto the building site on prom night, and then as they were getting high and drunk and frisky while listening to music, they fell through three floors into the cellar and died. Um, so Lorraine asks the ghosts what they want, and they tell her, we never got to spend the night together. So their unfinished business is Aww. doing the business. That's great. And not only that, they're like, you know, you two are cute. You seem like perfect vessels for us to finally get this done so that we can go on because we've lost our virginities to each other, the, the ghost teenagers. Um, so Lorraine goes back to Ed and she's like, we can't spend the night here. We cannot spend the night here. But he doesn't understand. He shrugs her off and he just assumes that she's going to try to sabotage his evidence gathering. Um, and then he asks why they can't stay. She's too embarrassed. Um, he, of course, insists that he's staying. And if she's not going to be the second person, he'll just call his cop friend, Brad. And Lorraine is like, no, you can't stay. Um, and so she blurts out that the house is haunted by horny teats. <laughs> and that if he and Brad stay overnight, they might get possessed by the teens and have sex with each other. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and then Ed doesn't believe her at first. And then, then he's mad that she didn't say anything and wanted to leave. And then he asks her if she hated him that much. And she admits that she doesn't. But if they are going to get closer to each other, it should be by their own free will. And then that's when the sparks fly. They lock eyes. Maybe they realize that in the midst of all that sexy bickering and arguing, they've gotten really close to each other. And then Lorraine kisses Ed and it's, you know, really hot uh, because they've, they're all fired up at this point. But then Ed pulls away and says, uh, what time is it? We should probably get out of here. And they both look at the clock and realize that it's 3.07 a.m., uh, I knew it was going to be 3.07. Uh, of course you knew that was I, I made it really obvious. Like, I, I'm never, if, if you go to see one day a movie that hopefully becomes a real thing, you're going to see it coming from day one because I don't do twists. Um, sure. I, I, I fully lean into predictability. Um, so it's 3.07. The music starts playing. Lorraine shouts at him, don't give in, um, before they're both taken over by the ghosts. And then we get to the next day. Uh, Ed and Lorraine wake up on the floor naked under a throw blanket. And Lorraine confirms that the ghosts are gone. And she makes a joke about still sending the tape to the Catholic Church. 
because uh-huh. now it's a sex tape. Um, and Ed doesn't laugh. He seems like he's really confused. And he asks, um, you said the ghosts were gone. I remember when the ghost left me. Do you remember when yours left you? And she pauses, but then says, yes, I remember. He also says, they left several hours ago, but we were still here. And she says, yes, I remember. And Ed says almost accusingly, you wanted to be here. And she says, so did you. So they they just kept on keeping on after the ghosts had left. They were already just into each other. So, I mean, why not? Um, the first one's for you. The second one's for her. Um, but... <laughs> Um, but, uh, then, uh, Ed asks if they should get married because he's a little starchy Catholic guy. And then Lorraine teases him for being so traditional, but you know, it's clear that these two are, are in it for the long haul. And as they clean up and make breakfast together, they're sitting at the kitchen table and Lorraine says, you know, I know what the answer to what we should do next is. Let's watch that tape. And then the movie ends. Oh, nice. You know, uh, just a take it or leave it note, uh, when maybe they have a priest coming to assist with the investigation and get stuff on tape. So the night after they spend together, when they get dressed and they're having that conversation and they're like, maybe we should get married. Knock, 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 open the door. There's a priest. That would be hilarious. Yeah. But yeah, I I really liked the idea of them accidentally recording a sex tape. Yeah, no, that's Yeah. I I actually did have a title for mine. I forgot. I didn't put it at the top of my paper. But my title is Unfinished Business. So it was funny that you mentioned it because it's such a such a ghosty term. They always have unfinished business, but rarely is their business doing the business. Right. Yeah, I like that. That's a good twist. See, you don't you say you don't do twists. That's probably not a twist. It's just a clever connection, clever metaphor. Um, for mine, I have Ed and Lorraine Warren are basically what they are now, which is a terrific couple. And nice. so what they do is they they have a business called Unfinished Business, where if you're in a relationship and your loved one dies they facilitate the unfinished business. They go in and they help the loved one move on. And normally the, what they have to do is like one of them, like the opening little silly one is leaving the lights on. Um, The, the guy used to leave lights on all the time in the relationship. And the, the wife was always like, why are you leaving the lights on and always shutting them off? Get out Um, of my brain. That's one of my pet peeves. Oh my, I do it all the time. And Sonia is constantly yelling at me for it. Um, You and Doug are in good company. (laughs) So, uh, so then it starts to happen more and more frequently. Like the lights start to turn off even when he's in the room. So he hires Ed and Lorraine and, you know, there's like some funny little moments where, where they're like, Hey, the ghost has to move on. So you have to learn how to let it go and accept that this is a flaw in your partner. And so then the ghost is all like, oh, you're taking his side. And they're like, no, we're not taking sides. 
you know, this isn't about right or wrong. This is about acceptance. So, you know, cute little stuff like that. And, um, and then we get into the, the main couple of the movie, which is there's an artist. So like Ron Livingston can play the artist guy and he's, he's not a very good artist and he's kind of like a fake artist who he thinks that art has to come from pain. So he's like trying to find things to be miserable about so he can do <laughs> quote unquote good paintings, but his paintings aren't really that good. Right. So, um, so they've got this crummy little apartment. Maybe she's got something nice that breaks, but he can't afford to replace it for her. So he goes to see Ed and Lorraine and there's a big monologue or no, I'm sorry. Uh, then we cut to another side case and there's a guy talking about losing his partner, but we don't see him. Right. Mm -hmm. So we just see Ed and Lorraine and it's pushing in on them slowly. And then he's talking about treasuring your partner about missing your partner and wanting to see them when they're gone and how his glasses are missing and how he thinks that his, his dead wife took his glasses because he does, because she doesn't want him to see her like this. And, and all, so it's a very big metaphor thing, but you know, he's talking about the connection between a couple as we're pushing in on Ed and Lorraine. So then they exchange like cutesy romantic eyes and they're all in love. And then the gimmick of the movie is like, you know, maybe they kiss and he's like, wait, what about me? And then they look at him and it cuts to him and his glasses are on his head. And they're like, uh, your glasses are on your head. And it's like, wah, wah. so it's a silly <laughs> little rom-com thing. Uh, but then we go back to the artist and he's painting and he's, you know, again, fake pain and stuff. But then he gets a call that his wife is dead. So he throws real a pain. Of, yeah. So he throws a bucket of black paint on his painting and it's like, ooh, gritty and dark. But it's a rom-com. So it's kind of silly. So then we have a montage of Ed and Lorraine solving people's problems and very silly that your glasses are on your head kind of way. But then the artist is going through money problems. He's got to take a real job to, you know, he's got to put away his supplies. But the supplies, the supplies start reappearing and the wife is trying to, you know, and his paintings start reappearing and his paintings are all creepy, right? Because he thought, you know, he had to do creepy, disturbing paintings. Can never throw haunted things in the trash or try to destroy them. Right. Especially Annabelle. Oh, my God. That was so good. Um, but then... You know, so it's clear that the wife is trying to get the husband to pursue his passion from beyond the grave. So the artist calls Ed and Lorraine, and this is, oh, I forgot to set this up, but this is going to be their last job, right? Of course, one last job, and then they're going to retire. Always one last job. <laughs> because they want to focus on their family. And at the beginning of the movie, we're going to set up just like in Up in the Air, they're up for like Therapist of the Year award. And it's a really big deal because it would be the first time that a paranormal therapy group would be would win the award. So it would be like a big win for the paranormal group. Um, and so Ed and Lorraine have to solve one more case in order to qualify for therapist of the year. What, you know, something silly. So Ed and Lorraine actually differ on the thing because ed is starting to they're, they're about to retire and start a family so ed is like no you have to pursue your family you have to provide maybe the maybe the artist and 
whatever. Maybe the artist has a daughter, right? So it's like, no, you have a daughter. You have to take care of your daughter. You have to provide for her. You have to start your family. You have to take care of your loved ones. And Lorraine is like, no, you have to pursue your dreams because that's what we did. And that's how we found the happiness to be together, which is going to allow us to live the rest of our life with such a solid foundation. So all this comes down to whether or not they're going to get the award and they're arguing because they have to get the award because it's, you know, it's not just for them. It's for the entire paranormal uh, community. So there's trouble at home. There's some insecurities and Ed and Lorraine end up splitting, right? Like <gasps> not, not a full-time split, just like an angry, I'm going to go stay at my mother's kind of split. So then they get a call from the artist. And uh, he does have a daughter because I wrote her in last minute. So the daughter is kidnapped and Ed and Lorraine show up at his house. And it turns out that the daughter was sucked into one of his paintings. Oh, Mario style. Oh, yeah. And so Ed tries to go into the painting to get her back. Right. Because, of course, Ed is the only demonologist ordained by the Catholic Church. But he gets spit out. You know, he's all wet and goopy with ectoplasm and stuff like that. So then Lorraine is like, well, I have to do it because I'm the supernatural one. So she jumps in and she gets spit out. And it's like, no, we're not connected to the daughter. The artist, the dad has to go into the painting. He's got to get the daughter, you know, very poltergeisty. The mom's got to go into the closet and get the get the daughter back so go into the painting and because his paintings are all depressing and scary all the monsters his his inner demons start attacking him and he's got to like you know but it's all fake so it's just like really creepy like silent hill yeah really creepy monsters stalking him maybe taunting him you're not good enough you know like look at my hand you can't draw hands and he's like (laughs) that's a very specific (laughs) artist insult (laughs) and so then he ends up finding his daughter and like the paintings start to turn beautiful and his wife is with the daughter and she's teaching the daughter to you know, draw her inspiration from positivity. And yes, she's sad that she has to leave the daughter, but, you know, just remember all the positive things. And so the painting world starts to become more and more colorful and stuff. Did you ever play Okami for for PS2 or Wii or whatever with the dog mm. in the painting? No, I haven't played that, but I did play this game called Flower that sounds similar to what you describe. Yeah, in Okami, you play a dog that paints, and it's really cool. And so, like, it, the world starts out not as colorful, but then you're making it colorful, and it's cool. So it's the same idea. So then, you know, there's a happy ending. The father and the daughter come back, and the father starts to paint positive, colorful Aww. pictures, and they start to sell and stuff like that. But then we go to the award show, and we like have this really gimmicky moment where, you know, when you go to tourist attractions and it's like, step over here, we're going to take your photo. Beep, beep, boop. Uh, mm-hmm. So Ed and Lorraine take a cheesy little photo and it's really cheesy and they don't take it seriously, but you know, they're having fun. They're having genuine smiles. Mm-hmm. So then as the announcer goes to announce them as the winners, um, you know, he's like, he's talking about positivity and cherished memories and how this trophy symbolizes all of that. And then Ed and Lorraine look at each other and they peace out. So before they're even announced as the winners, they leave the award show. And then we cut back. It's like George Clooney. Right. And so then we cut back to their house and the little 
the little monument trophy case place that they had already designed and picked out for the trophy that they knew they were going to win because they're so positive and supportive in place of where the trophy would be is the little touristy photo that they took. So it's like, we don't need a trophy to tell us that we're a cute little couple who likes each other. We have our memories and we have our photos and yeah. So that's the end of the movie is like ending on that photo. I like that. I think that's really cute. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I think all four of our movies were just like, we had really good material to work with. So it was really it's fun. It's easy to write vehicles for Vera Farmiga. Oh, they just so write themselves. Definitely. Shall we love on some bites? Take a bite yeah. out of love? Yeah, I'll go first because uh, I have yeah. a, a one that I don't normally recommend. Um, Ooh. I have been listening to some music recently and one of the things that I really like are rock operas. So the band that I recommended previously does a Mega Man themed rock opera and this band Glory Hammer does a sort of medieval sci-fi rock opera. So it's you know, this prince of a kingdom with trolls and dragons has to go fight this evil wizard that opens a portal to other galaxies. And he's got to collect these amulets and fight the, the wizard. And the, the wizard turns the unicorns evil. So they've got to fight the unicorns and all this crazy stuff. Um, and they've got three albums and it's just really listenable. Like even if you listen to it and it's not your kind of music, you could instantly hear why other people would like it. Um, but it's just, it's really pumped up and it's, it really goes for its concept. So the script that I'm working on right now, it's like, it's a weird script, but the way that I usually write out my ideas is I have a sort of normal version of my idea. And then I, Brett it up, which is to say, I just start throwing all these wacky, crazy ideas at it and see what sticks. And it, you know, it's like the hitcher. I don't want to just make a movie where we're slowly building up. Like I love the conjuring, but I could never make the conjuring. I can't slowly build up to one final exorcism. I like the hitcher, which is in the first five minutes, the hitcher promises to kill C. Thomas Howell. And then the rest of the movie just escalates in more and more crazy ways. Um, so Glory Hammer is that. They just, they dive into their gimmick and they just, they escalate it in crazier and crazier ways. So Glory Hammer, all one word, check it Glory out. Glory Hammer, I, I'll check it out. And I'm, I'm a big fan of concept albums. I love a good story through music uh, and and that sounds great. And what you described is pretty much my style, too. Um, I don't think anybody has ever said that I have restraint <laughs> when it comes to the way I want to tell a story. Um, yeah, unrestrained is is definitely what I prefer. Uh, yeah, that that sounds fun. Uh, and yeah. they're kind of like like old school heavy metal is their style, like power power rock or whatever i am not nearly as well versed in music terms as i am in film terms so it is rock it's a rock genre but i don't know the subgenre, so i couldn't describe it to you but yeah like a power reference 
yeah, it, it fits. Uh, yeah, no, that sounds great. Yeah. How about you? What do you got for us? So I've got two. Um, I've said in previous podcasts that I like to pair, uh, the, uh, the love bite with the subject of the episode. Uh, but I also like to break my own rules. So I'm going to both follow and break the rule. Uh, as far as a Vera Farmiga recommendation, I would like to recommend a movie that Brett and I have brought up on the podcast before, I believe. It's called Running Scared. And, oh, this movie. You know how I was talking about the movie Freeway in a previous yeah. episode? I think I might have even mentioned Running Scared when I talked about Freeway because Freeway is like a twisted version of Little Red Riding Hood. And then Running Scared is a twisted version of Alice in Wonderland. The main character is played by Paul Walker, and then his wife is played by Vera Farmiga. And she has a supporting role that uh, her vignette in this movie is one of the most powerful moments in the movie and she makes a decision that you would definitely not expect but when she does what she does you're rooting for her the entire way uh the movie is very stylistic i feel like every single scene in running scared has a different color filter over it yeah uh and so it's just it's just I don't want to give away too much of the plot because, again, I feel like Running Scared is another movie where if you go in knowing nothing about it, you're going to have a great time. Uh, all you need to know is that it's heavily stylized, it's violent, it's gritty, it's got that fairy tale spin, so it's kind of whimsical at the same time. Uh, and then Vera Farmiga has an amazing role in the movie. Yeah, I second everything you just said. Uh, Running Scared gets a big seal of approval from Necromancer Podcast. Mm -hmm. Now, the other recommendation I wanted to make was something that I've been uh, watching recently that my best friend Jasmine recommended to me. And when I was looking up the director, I learned it had a podcast connection. So you remember when we watched Job We Met, the Bollywood movie? Of course. Well, the director of... How can I of, forget Anshuman? You can never forget Anshuman. He's the ultimate Bellamy, uh, the ultimate second lead. So the director of Job We Met has produced and directed a Netflix series called She. And that director's name is Imtiaz Ali. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. Now, you saw Job We Met. She could not be more different from Job We Met, whereas Job We Met is a romantic comedy. Uh, she is a sort of gritty thriller police procedural. It's about this woman named Bumika, who is a police officer, and then she is put in an undercover assignment uh, where she must pretend to be a prostitute. And this is complicated by the fact that Bumika is also a sexual abuse survivor. So I would say that trigger warning, if you're a victim of sexual abuse, that this show has all of the triggers and the way that it deals with sex and sexuality is really complicated. But I think it's actually a really interesting show 
Uh, and it's kind of um, it's it's her her breaking bad, basically. And, and uh, you know, rather than her past being part of somebody else's character development, which is usually a problem I have anytime you see rape in TV shows or movies, is it, it's usually to support somebody else's growth rather than the survivor and being focused on them and their journey. Um, but she is is all about Boomy uh, and and what she does with this new uh, role as an undercover cop. And uh, yeah, it's totally different from Job We Met uh, and worth checking out. Mm, nice. She. She. Is it Indian S- show on mm. Netflix. I would say that the beginning and the end of She is better than the middle arc. This is one of those shows where they try to do a lot of things at once and they succeed in doing a few things really well. Um, So I'd say mixed quality, but like I've said before, I like shows that try to do things that are daring, that go against the grain. I mean, this show is so, I mean, where Job We Met is very fluffy, this show is definitely aiming for a completely different feeling. And uh, yeah, it's really surprising. Nice. Is it S-H-E? She? Yes. Just she. Just she. Uh, the last thing I have to say is that I don't think I've ever met a single person who has disliked The Conjuring. And so while I encourage you to email into our podcast at necromancerpodcast at gmail.com, and I welcome all forms of disagreements. Uh, you know, we can have a conversation about movies that we don't agree on. Do not email our email and tell me that you dislike this movie. I want to live in this fantasy world where everyone likes The Conjuring. So if you didn't like it, I don't want to know. Yeah, no, I don't really care for you as a person if you thought The Conjuring was bad. Um, we. We're probably not going to be friends regardless. Uh, But you can also follow us uh, at the Necromancer podcast on Instagram uh, as well as uh, we've got a Twitter. We've got a Twitter Necromancer pod. And then I think that's the same for Facebook as well. Follow us so that we know people like us and like, and subscribe. Definitely. Did we do it? Did we sell ourselves well enough? <laughs> I hope so. All right. You'll yeah, be the judge. Not to email us is a great way to sell ourselves. I think that's going to actually start it off. I, I feel like Sorry. the contrarians, the rebels will, will make themselves known. Uh, but I guess that's it for today. I hope that you have a very good evening. Oh, nailed it. Stuck the landing. <laughs> Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.